Welcome back to another Tennessee Holler. You can follow us at TN Holler on Twitter and Facebook. TNHoller.com is the website, and we send out a daily email with links trying to keep people up to speed on what's going on here in Tennessee. Small monthly donations are really helpful. Thank you to everybody who's doing that. We're an independent journalism site. That stuff really helps. I'm here with my pal, John Henson from the Food Network's Halloween Baking Championship. Yeah, man. Good to be here. Nice to see you, brother. I miss you now that you're not in L.A. anymore. I know. I miss you, too. While I was running for Congress here in Tennessee, you were extremely supportive. And we actually did a fundraiser at the Laugh Factory in Hollywood where you hosted and we had some great comedians. I know I've thanked you for that, but I want to properly thank you for doing that because you were awesome and it was a great event. Yeah, you don't need to thank me, dude. This was that was uh, it was an honor to do it. Um, I've told you ad nauseum how much I uh, I admire you for rolling up your sleeves and getting involved. I am as guilty as anyone of just spewing righteous indignation on social media. But um, you, you know, you got on the field, man. You got in the game. You suited up and showed up. I, I give you a hell of a lot of credit for that. And you're still doing it. So thank you for what you, you did and are doing. Well, I appreciate that. We're all doing it. I mean, we're all on the field, whether we want to be or not. And, you know, I see you on there. You're constantly commenting. And one thing that you do that I think is really important is you do engage with the people that lash out at you. And, you know, I think the one thing that's missing from the conversation is a dialogue with people who don't agree with us about everything. And I was able to do that when I was running for Congress, but it happens online. And it's, I think it's important to talk back, which you do. I do. And I, I try very hard, uh, not perfectly, but, um, you know, I, I'm, uh, extremely, uh, scathing with regard to, uh, public officials, uh, especially elected officials. Um, but when I communicate with people, whether it's someone I know or someone I don't know uh, on social media, I try to always be respectful. I try to keep it fact based. There are times where obviously that is not possible. People will not allow it. And um, I am guilty of returning fire. But uh, but I, I think it is important uh, to create a, a, a dialogue because I think what you know, I don't know where you are on this, but I sort of feel like what we are seeing is um, almost a, a, a political infection in our country, a, a sort of a political sepsis where uh, people grew very disenfranchised with government and then the Murdochs came along and weaponized that and turned it into kind of like a, if you want to go with the uh, infection uh, analogy, like almost like a warfare, you know? Um, uh, and so, um, you know, we're seeing this enormous divide. And if there is a silver lining to be found in this administration, I think it's that it's forcing it to the surface and it's become a reckoning for us. And the only way. Well, I, I, and I think it's also forcing a lot of people to be engaged that otherwise wouldn't. I mean, I never would have run for Congress if we weren't in the situation we're in. And I'm not alone. There are hundreds of people running for office up and down the ticket all throughout the country. Ocasio-Cortez probably wouldn't be in office if Trump sure. had won. 2016. So hopefully the activation of all of these good people throughout the country and, you know, not just for office. I mean, people are more engaged in the conversation. People are helping us holler with the Tennessee holler every single day. So yeah. it's really important that people realize that democracy is not a spectator sport and they have to get involved and do everything they can. And every little action really yeah. helps. So. Thousand percent, dude, I would love to go back to writing off color jokes on social media. <laughs> 
time. But I feel like it's a moral obligation at this point. Everybody becomes a firefighter when your house is burning down. And I that's think that's exactly right. Uh, I just want to tell people, Lee Supporter says, hello, John, love watching you on the baking show. And I just want to tell people that they can comment along and we will try to address uh, their, their comments as they make them. We have a bunch of people watching us already. And, you know, this is definitely an interactive format. So please do comment along. We, we do hear you. Uh, so, John, you know, this has become an absolute shit show. Uh, you know, part of the reason that I wanted to get you on here is to let you vent a little bit. But, you know, there are some specific things happening that we were just talking about as we were coming on here. They've declared a ceasefire in Syria and basically Pence and Trump are taking credit for the fire that they started. So, the fire department. Yeah. Do you, do you get into politics in your sets when you're on stage? Like, how do you stay away from it? I do. I do stay away from it, if only because I think there's a fair amount of the population that is coming to comedy clubs to escape that kind of uh, uh, friction. Um, and I, I understand and recognize that that is not what people expect from me. And um, and I, I, uh, I do want to be able to entertain away from it. I also think, quite frankly, although I am uh, uh, satirical oftentimes on social media, that this is uh, a more sober and, and serious subject. So mm -hmm. uh, I am historically not a political comedian there. You know, people who do that really, really well. Um, I, I kind of want to be free of the chains of comedy and be able to have um, a more authentic conversation about it when it comes to politics. The thing that's so wild to me, and, and you know, I just this morning was in Nashville. There was a Women for Trump rally in Nashville, and basically it was about 60 people gathered in Nashville, and they walked from the Bicentennial Mall about three blocks to the Capitol, where they were met by a dozen, I guess, Antifa, black-clad, masked pro counter-protesters that were yelling at them. But, you know, I tried to talk to as many of the Trump protesters as I could, or the, the marchers, and it's just unbelievable how we live in these two completely different realities where they see everything Trump does as heroic. And, you know, anybody who pushes back against him is the enemy and they don't care about his taxes. They think everybody's corrupt. You know, yeah. they, they think they don't care about a quid pro quo. It, it, it feels cultish in a very real way where they're just willing to excuse anything this guy does. And it's just my yeah. I think any time that uh, in 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 almost any capacity, uh, whether it's political or cultural, when you view someone as infallible, you have lost the narrative. And and I think the idea um, that this guy can do no wrong in the face of uh, a torrent of evidence every single day that that's not the case. Um, you know, you, you can't look at that and not think that the, um, the, the devotion to him and the faith in him is anchored in, uh, you know, something unreasonable, something, um, something sort of disjointed from reality. Uh, I, I have more, um, faith uh, that you can reach people who are able to say, hey, look, the guy is uh, repugnant in many ways and is uh, a shameless liar, but I agree with X. I mean, at least that to me is grounded in reality. 
Um, but the the people who um, who sort of you know they he's built in this fail safe switch where, like you said, anybody that attacks him is part of the deep state and is trying to undo the 2016 election. Like he's, he's given, and with the fake news thing, he's given himself this ability to, um, you know, to almost uh, enable his supporters to go, la, 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 I'm not listening. Right. Right. And, and now, you know, they're, they're literally on TV saying, yes, it was a quid pro quo. Yes. We do this all the time, admitting to everything. Yeah, and bless Nicole Bainey, man. He went two for two today. He admitted that there was a quid pro quo, and then they asked him about holding the G7 at Doral, and he was like, oh, no, there's a lot of places we could have done it. We just picked the place that stuffs money into the president's pocket. It's like Right, and it's just this fire hose of corruption. It's, you know, his, it, they just, the taxes came out this week. ProPublica had a study that showed that, you know, he's telling the state one thing to lower his taxes and telling the banks another thing to get a loan about the exact same property. Everything this guy does is corrupt. If, if it's not corrupt, he doesn't want anything to do with it. And yeah. they don't care. Tax, uh, tax regulation, tax valuation, uh, lending, et cetera, that is a strictly regulated industry. Anybody that's ever had to borrow money or, you know, buy a house or, uh, uh, you know, file for insurance knows that is there's no wiggle room there. And, and you have, you know, issues where uh, on his financial statement, when he took office, he has a property in upstate New York that he valued between 25 and $50 million. Even that's high. People speculate that it's worth closer to 25, but, um, and then, you know, they find banking information where, you know, he valued it at like 150 something uh, million dollars in terms of his, uh, financial statements to try to buy an NFL team. So, you know, there isn't a, there isn't a defense for that. Uh, I yeah, think it just seems like their eyes glaze over because it's just too detailed or something. It's not make America great again. It's not get rid of the illegals. It's not, you know, roll back regulations. It's not simple, you know, well, the simpler the better. You know, you you kind of put your finger on it where you said the whole world's corrupt, right? Like they believe the entire world's corrupt. He's just better at it than you guys. And that's why you're mad. And that kind of cynical attitude is really the root of, and I hate to even use this um, uh, anchor to this reality, but it is the, it, it's a fact. People will dismiss it. But Russian disinformation and their uh, disinformation campaigns are based on the idea that they can essentially make truth subjective, right? That they can instill a level of cynicism in the people where there is no such thing as truth and therefore truth is defined by the people in power. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing in Donald Trump and his followers. Absolutely right. Do you have your phone near you? I do. Okay, I just sent you the letter that Trump sent to Erdogan. Yeah. I think with, I'll call you later. Like, you know, I was hoping you could do a reading of it. Sure. T T Y L at the end, which I love, you know, like (laughs) it's ridiculous. Okay. Uh, I've read this thing like 10 times and it gets more ridiculous every time I read it. So I was hoping maybe it's when you read this stuff, you just go, we are living in an onion headline. Like the is literally they're sitting around in a room right now going, our business model is destroyed. There's no, (laughs) we can't lampoon this. Uh, All right. It, uh, it begins, dear Mr. President, 
let's work out a good deal, exclamation point. I love the uh, I love the punctuation. You don't want to be responsible for slaughtering thousands of people. <laughs> Parenthetical, nobody does. Uh, and I don't want to be responsible for destroying the Turkish economy, and I will. I've already given you a little sample with respect to Pastor Brunson. Uh, uh, with respect to Pastor Brunson, I've worked hard to resolve some of your problems. Don't let the world down. You can make a great deal. It's all about the deal with this guy. General Muslim is waiting, uh, is willing to negotiate with you, and he is willing to make concessions that they would never have made in the past. I am confidentially enclosing a copy of this letter to me just received. History will look upon you favorably if you get this done the right and humane way. It will look upon you forever as the devil if good things don't happen. Good things. Well, let's be specific about our expectations. Uh, Don't be a tough guy from Trump. Don't be a fool. I will call you later. Like this is, it ends with literally like a, you up? You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like a text. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And uh, it's an instrument. You know what I mean? This was, this was not vetted by anyone other than the person who typed it. This was him probably wandering around his Oval Office with a, you know, a, a Coke, uh, a Diet Coke in one hand and a Big Mac in the other and going, uh, uh, and then just sign it, you know, I'll talk to you later. Right. Well, so I know that, you know, he takes up all the oxygen. I'm wondering, I, we haven't talked about this, but is there anybody that you've responded to in the Democratic primary that you feel like you're gravitating towards or how are you feeling about that? Yeah, I mean, look, um, there were people that uh, I was very intrigued by who, you know, who are already succumbing to attrition. Um, I was very intrigued by Michael Bennett. I think I sent you the video of him absolutely eviscerating Ted Cruz uh, on the floor of Congress or the Senate, uh, rather. Um, you know, uh, I I think I am um, I'm having trouble getting behind Biden. Um, I, I, I understand the idea of the re- name recognition and, and the, the record. But what I'm seeing from him currently, I mean, the, the my son's statement speaks for itself, like that's the best that you guys came up with after a week of being in the headlines and knowing that question was right. very underwhelming for me. Um, you know, I I like Elizabeth Warren a lot. I think um, I I fear when you talk about uh, taking away uh, uh, health insurance, private health insurance from uh, over a hundred million people that. Um, that that you know uh, is going to backfire in terms of. I just think you need to think of incremental steps. Um, it seems to me that uh, the the best plan is to strengthen and expand Obamacare. Um, these are just my personal opinions. I also just love Mayor Pete, man. I, I think Mayor Pete is, without uh, exception, the best public speaker in this field. Uh, I think he communicates in a way that's effective. I think he has a history of service to the country and putting himself in harm's way. I think a lot of him. Um, he, he's yeah. been great. We'll say, because I've sort of been in his camp a little bit and I went to see him speak in Nashville and he was great, but he has been railing against Medicare for all. And I think this is a good debate for the party to be having. And I think a lot of smart people like you and other people that we both know are wary of a Medicare for all plan and, have the same feelings about incrementalism. 
Pete was on Twitter a year ago talking about how he's all in for Medicare for all. And you don't hear him mention that at all. So, you yeah, know, that bothered me a little bit. Yeah. Look, I, um, I, I'm aware of that. I'd like to think that um, he is has the humility to address that and say, I was and I looked into it and this is why I changed my opinion. Uh, I, I think his ability to take responsibility for uh, his own evolution on subjects or his own shortcomings is is very uh, uh, heartening. You know, when when he was asked in one of the earlier debates, uh, about the diversity issues in law enforcement in his town and why that exists. And he immediately said, I didn't get it done. I mean, that's the kind of accountability that is missing from uh, the current state of politics. And so um, I think this sort of fantasy that we all have that we're going to find a flawless, bulletproof candidate uh, is uh, greatness is the obstacle to, uh, to being good. Right. Uh, I mean, you, you know, you have to accept the fact that people are going to make mistakes. Their opinions are going to evolve. Um, and I do think, as you said, that the conversation needs to be had now um, and not uh, a year from now. In other words, I, I would rather them sharpen these opinions against each other and come to a consensus. I think Medicare for all is great as a end goal. But I think you have to I think you have to think in terms of what you can get done. I think people want to hear something practical because here we it's a, it's, a, it's a fair and valid criticism. Uh, you know, the fact that we're even talking about it is a testament to Bernie and planting his flag and moving the conversation probably more so than anybody has. And, you know, regardless of whether he wins or not, he deserves a lot of credit for that. Well, 100. Uh, I mean, Bernie has uh, has enough. Uh, has exhibited enough gravity to pull the party to the left and have them embrace uh, ideas that they never would have considered, you know, uh, four years ago. So, uh, yeah, I mean, um, there's a, there's a lot to like about Bernie. There's a lot to like about Elizabeth Warren. I like other, aside from the Medicare for all aspect, I do think that, um, I like that Elizabeth Warren is a bit of a policy wonk. You know what I mean? I like that she um, has a detailed plan for everything. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, uh, I, I just want to make sure. I think, you know, I, I think that the, the point that keeps being made is um, Trump's base isn't going anywhere. And the Democrats need to stop trying to win over Republican voters and concentrate on firing up their base. And so, um, you know, uh, that's not going to be done perfectly right out the bat. You got to roll out a bunch of ideas and kind of focus group them and test them in the, in, uh, in, in the presence of voters and see what we come up with. Well, I think that's totally true. Non-voters are the largest block of voters in the country and we need to give them, I mean, I think Warren really voices it well. She says we need to give them something to come out for. It's not going to be about flipping the people that I was with this morning. You know, they're not coming over. It's about engaging people and giving them something to get excited about. That's why I think Biden is not the answer right now, because he sort right. of represents this, you know, not just incrementalism, but, a, you know, a, a status quo. Because yeah, Trump, I mean, if, if Trump is make America great again, like it was in the 1950s, uh, uh, then, you know, or, or the 
for him, maybe the 30s or the 1800s. But um, but then then Biden sort of represents let's make America great again like it was six years ago. You know what I mean? Um, and uh, and and that's sort of like, uh, it, you know, people who are nostalgic for Obama and want Obama 2.0. But um, uh, I, I think at the end of the day, you know, there is no reasoning with the 40% of this country that is, uh, you know, uh, chained to Donald Trump. I think we're in a position where we have to kind of wrest control from the minority rule that we're in and pray that in four or eight years of a Democratic uh, administration, people are going to see that their lives are better. Right. And we have to explain to them why their lives are going to be better here in Tennessee. You know, we went through a Senate election in 2018 where, you know, we had a pretty moderate guy at the top of the ticket. And I think we need to look at it as though we, tr we tried that. You know, now I want to see a progressive. You know, that's why I'm sort of in the Warren Sanders camp, because it just feels like there's not that many undecided people. We need to motivate people who are not used to. And I think this is our best chance to get a real progressive in there. And so that's that's why I'm with Warren. But, you know, it's it's really just about creating that vision for what what are you not getting by not electing Democrats? And there are some very real answers to that. You're, you're you know, you can't see a doctor. Your wages yeah. aren't going up. You know, there, there are very real things that are missing from people's lives that would be there if we were in office. And, you know, and then once it happens, they need to deliver. I think that's part of the problem is that, you know, we did control all three branches or, you know, and we got healthcare, but we need to show right. them that we're going to, we're going to do more for them than they realize. And we do that by getting active. You know, I also, I, I think we're in a, um, a sort of queasy period right now in these democratic uh, uh, sort of jousting matches where, we're we're eating our own, right? We're 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 challenging uh, uh, fellow uh, Democrats on their ideas and stuff. Once we settle on a candidate, and we are able to focus on the indisputable facts of the way the tax break has worked out for the American public, uh, the the um, the sheer width and breadth of the corruption in uh, in this administration. I mean, I, I before this, I sat down and just went through my notes and looked at the amount of uh, cabinet officials that have resigned under uh, right. scandal, the specter of wrongdoing. And it is just breathtaking. And now that we are, now that every day that we rip the seam open on this Ukraine situation and it gets so much darker and so much deeper and the the revelation that at the same time Rudy Giuliani is uh, is is trying to you know strong arm Ukraine into an investigation there you know he and his cronies are also trying to uh, set themselves up for contracts from their gas company and and replace all the the uh, the executives in the gas company. Literally, the day that uh, Zelensky was elected, they gave him a list of people. These are the people that we think you should install. I think um, that's actually the thing that they wanted more than anything else because it's this guy Dimitro Firtash who's been pulling the strings, and his yeah. gas company position is what he lost, and it's what Yovanovitch, the ambassador, was standing in the way of. 
and all of the strings go back to that. Manafort was, you know, guy, and now he's in jail. It is. He's Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, you, you have to remember if these are the things we're finding out right. in the years from now, we will unravel other things that are so much more shocking. And there was a, an article on Vanity Fair today uh, uh, called The Fantastically Profitable Mystery of Donald Trump's Chaos Trades. And, you know, uh, Stephanie Rule, who I, uh, I follow on Twitter and, and enjoy a lot, um, wrote, uh, in the last 10 minutes of trading on August 23rd, as markets were roiling in the face of more bad trade news, someone bought 386,000 SEP E-minis, these shares. Three days later, Trump lied about getting a call from China to restart trade talks, and the S&P shot up nearly 80 points. That is a potential profit of $1.5 billion. I mean, it, you know, uh, there is... There, you know, there are more fires to put out than we could possibly focus on. And I, I, I you know, I mean, you, you just go back to somebody like Carl Icahn dumping his steel stock uh, right. two days before uh, the tariffs on steel are announced, and um, you know, Elaine Chow saying she's going to sell stock in a cement right. company. How about selling ambassadorships for a million dollars a pop? Yeah. You know, it, yeah, it's 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 wild. That article that you're talking about, which is eye popping, it's not just that time. They basically say that you know before he's made any announcement that was going to affect the markets in the last 15 minutes of trading, somebody bought hundreds of thousands of shares to yeah. make money off of it. And you know if it's not somebody related to him, then that that would be surprising. It, it pretty much has to be. Yeah, I mean, it's it is. Um, I, I think at this point you have to say, would you put it past him? I mean, w you know, for all the people that uh, that were like, uh, you know, you guys looked into Russia and there was nothing there. Uh, you know, well, if there if there really was nothing there, then why is he trying to now openly do it with two other countries in a forward facing uh, upcoming uh, election? <laughs> Respect. I mean, at, at this point. There is nothing that I would look at in terms of speculation with him and say, I don't think he's capable of it. Right. And and honestly, it would be a shock if he wasn't doing things like that at this point. Right. You know, it's, it, when, he, when he comes out and says, you know, I just had a good talk with China and markets go up and then China says we didn't talk to him. There's a reason he's doing that. He's not just oh, saying, okay. you know, you and know? Then the administration says, well, he wanted to goose the markets. Like, right. You know, I mean, uh, uh, it is um, it is it's distressing um, and I have, you know, no idea uh, uh, how this all ends up. But I do think the idea of this sort of 3D chess that, oh, no, he wants us to impeach him. And if we try to impeach him and the Senate doesn't convict, that's vindication. It's going to, you know, result in four more years. And, you know, at a certain point, you have to stop speculating about what might happen and just do the next right thing, right? Mm -hmm. You know, what is the next right indicated action? And I would, uh, I would rather uh, uh, the opposition risk failure by doing the right thing than potentially uh, 
pass up an opportunity that greenlights behavior uh, that is horrific and could affect presidents down the road out of some 3D chess calculation that may or not be may or may not be correct. I, I couldn't agree more. And you know, if you're always governing by polls, then you're not do, you're not doing the right thing. You're not putting the right thing first, and that's not leadership. So I'm glad that they're they're doing it. I think it probably should have happened a while ago. Uh, John, I'm going to let you go here pretty soon. I appreciate you doing this. I just want to read a couple of the comments. Christina Harvey Manning says she loves our work at the holler. Jamie White says is telling somebody else, look who it is, apparently a fan of yours. And then my pal Don Meradian says he's not sure that we shouldn't try to get independents and marginal Republicans. Why would people who didn't vote in 2016 and 2020 vote, vote in 2020? Free stuff, maybe, but we need to pull a few Republicans who are voting against their interests because Republicans vote against you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's you know, it's a fair debate to have. I think you can do both. And Look, I, I think yeah, I, I, I would qualify that uh, by saying, let's focus on independence. Let's focus on independence and historically Democratic voters that went Republican. I mean, right. you know, let's not forget the fact that Donald Trump lost the popular election by nearly 3 million votes. He cannot afford to lose any of his base. Right. Right. Uh, You know, he ran an inside straight um, and uh, and he is has never historically made any effort at all to expand his base. But I have to believe that the people who threw a what the hell vote in this election that were disenfranchised with the state of politics, that were not diehard supporters, but were casting their vote for a shakeup, have the ability and the rational thought to look at this and go, well, this was not what I bargained for at all. And, you know, at the end of the day, when you're talking about wooing Republicans, if you're a dyed in a uh, wool Republican, you're not going to go with a party that is pro-choice. You know, you're not going to go with a party that uh, supports gay marriage. You're, you know, there are there are bedrock issues of diehard Republicans that they would rather vote for someone corrupt who subscribes to those ideas, evidenced by the, the Christian right. You know that they they forgive Donald Trump for all of his very public moral failings because he's giving them the judges that he wants. And uh, and so, you know, if you're if you're rooted in that kind of cultural conservatism or you're rooted in uh, in, in, in a place of, uh, of racism and, uh, and and bigotry, um, I don't think those people are reachable. It's the it's the fringe of the party and the independents, the people who cast a Republican vote in this election, but have voted Democratic in the past that I think we need to bring back. And, and to your point about doing the right thing, I mean. We're going to get called socialists no matter what we do. They'll call Biden a socialist. They'll call everybody a socialist. So we can't operate from out of fear of that. You know, we need to do the right thing. And, and you know, if that if you think that means a, a more moderate candidate, then great. But I, I just would not want to see people shy away from supporting the candidate they believe in just because they're worried about what the other side might say. Yeah. And look, I mean, I know we got to wrap up, but I will say the thing that um I am most dismayed by in the last few years is not that the Constitution did not really plan for or guard against an amoral person in the White House, you know, that that we aren't built, the Constitution isn't built 
to deal with someone who isn't operating from a place of good faith. It's the complete, um, uh, com- the, the complete moral failure and uh, enabling of an entire party. I mean, what we are seeing is like a jailbreak uh, uh, on the part of the GOP to completely uh, abdicate any underpinnings of their uh, the, the moral structure of their party. They have uh, completely caved in. And, uh, and, and that to me is the thing that's most distressing because we can remove Donald Trump from office, God willing, in 2020. But the, the, the amount of people in, uh, Congress and, and Senate that, that have, uh, given way towards self-preservation over, uh, any sense of obligation to their country is a greater issue that I think it's going to take us a longer time to root out. I think that's well said, John. I appreciate you being here with me and uh, I will definitely be following you at John underscore Henson on Twitter and let's keep talking and let's keep texting each other about the Knicks and I appreciate you. And uh, uh, what are people is, is Holly making champ? My wife watches it. Holly making championship is airing right now on food network Mondays, uh, 6 PM or 9 PM rather on Mondays. And, uh, it's an awesome show. This is my third season. I love doing it. It's a ton of fun and, uh, uh, enjoy it, man. While October lasts, it's getting down to the wire. Tennessee.